I'm going to relate a typical scene from my childhood maybe you can identify. CW. 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 Charles Warren Faulkner. You know what just happened there, right? Because you've known that from your childhood. Right? You were doing something, headed somewhere, thinking about something. Mom or dad tries to get your attention. And you just keep on doing. And they try again, and they try again, and they try again until the full name comes out. And then you know, right? Like, oh, they're serious. They really want me to stop playing or stop running out in the street or stop talking on the phone and listen. In Jeremiah 11 through 13, we see God's people have had that experience for all of time. And when God tries to speak to us, he may start in a very normal conversational tone. But if he loves us and we ignore him, he will not let us persist. He will escalate his volume until he gets our attention. He has brought us near to worship him and to hear from him. uh, And so we should listen up. That's Jeremiah. I think the, the way to summarize Jeremiah 11 through 13. So if you've got your Bibles open to Jeremiah 11, <clears throat> we'll be looking at those, thir- those three chapters. We'll try to read a lot of it. We won't get to read all of it. You can always use the bulletin to look ahead and read it ahead so you can get all of the verses, all of the word that uh, we're going to be looking at together as a, as a church. Uh, if you don't have your own copy, pull the Bible off the pew in front of you and look at page 639. 639 is where Jeremiah 11 through 13 is. As we consider <clears throat> this, this idea as God is calling through Jeremiah to a people who are in rebellion, uh, that we have been brought near to God to hear from God. We have been brought near to God so we can hear from the living God. So we should listen up. <laughs> we should listen. Uh, in chapter 11, he'll bring up the idea of the covenant. <clears throat> in chapter 12, We'll see how Jeremiah's preaching of that covenant to his people brought him hatred. And in chapter 13, the call then for open ears through humility. So those are the three movements of the sermon, these three chapters today. Hearing, hatred, and humility will be the themes we work through. Um, So you can put those on the side, yeah, hearing. uh, Basically the first half of chapter 11, hatred in the rest of chapter 11 and chapter 12, and humility in chapter 13. Because it's hard to listen We instinctively don't listen. We are all spiritual toddlers. Every one of us doing our own thing until we've been trained and come to see the goodness of dad's voice. When dad speaks, unlike our earthly fathers sometimes, when our heavenly father speaks, it's always for our good, always because he loves us, always because he is warning us or correcting us or teaching us to glorify us. So the glory he has, we reflect. But in our sinful instincts, we don't think that. And so let's talk first about chapter 11. Uh, hear and be heard. Jeremiah comes in God's, with God's word telling the people to hear so they can be heard. Really, really what he does is he comes to the people saying, you're not listening so you won't be heard. But we can learn from them that we, if we will hear God, we will be heard. So let's look at chapter 11. Start at verse 1 through 5. The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant. And speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God. That I may give them a land flowing with milk and honey as it is this day. 
And then I answered, and that's Jeremiah, then I answered, so be it, Lord. Which is amen, amen, Lord. So God brings up the idea of the covenant with Jeremiah. Go tell these people the words of this covenant. And the covenant he's referring to is one of two. It's either the original covenant with Sinai, which we read about in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and particularly Deuteronomy, uh, where God reiterates for the second generation all of the covenant promises that he's made to his people, tells them to live according to his word, and closes Deuteronomy with blessings and curses. If you listen and do, you'll be blessed in the land and fruitful and satisfied and overabundance. And then curses, if you, if you refuse to listen, if you harden your hearts, then you, know, you won't be fruitful. Sickness and disease will come, and eventually you'll be exiled from the land altogether. So maybe it's that covenant. Or it may be the covenant King Josiah made with the people when he rediscovered the book of the law, which is really to say the same covenant, because Josiah took the book of the law and re-covenanted with the people. And rather, Jeremiah means one or the other. The point is the same, right? God has brought them near, all the way from when he rescued them from the land of Egypt, so that I can be your God and you can be my people if you will listen to my voice and, and do what I say. And you will have a land flowing with milk and honey, just abundance, which is where they are, right? When Jeremiah brings them uh, the word of God, they are in that land. This is just an amazing privilege. We should just stop and, and I want us to stop and just meditate on the fact that to be able to hear from God is an amazing privilege. To have God reveal himself and tell us how to understand the world he made And to understand ourselves and what he made us to be and who he's called us to be. And to to correct us when we go astray and to show us how we can go right. For God to open his mouth and reveal himself to us is a privilege beyond imagining. He could have been silent and just let us experience the consequences of our rebellion. But he wasn't. Psalm 1, blessed is the one, the man or the woman who delights in God's law, his teaching and his instruction. Like a tree planted by water that never withers and yields fruit in its season. To hear from God is to receive everything you need to be that kind of blessed. And what we see in Jeremiah 11 here is that the people, along with our instincts, just instinctively, we push back. So before we jump into the consequences there, let's just say that we need, beloved, one of the goals I hope for us this morning is that we are renewed in our desire to hear from God. And maybe just a couple of things, the way we talk to ourselves or among ourselves about the scriptures particularly can can help us there. Uh, When you say it's going to go to church on Sunday, that's what we do. We go to the assembly. And I hope you don't mean I'm going to the building. I hope you mean I'm coming to the assembly of the saints. That's what church means, the assembly. But let me encourage you, when you think about that, how often do you think I'm going to the assembly so I can hear the word of God? So I can hear from my maker and my savior. Obviously, through the sermon, we devote a lot of time in our gatherings to that process, this that we're doing right now, but also through the songs, to hear from God as you hear others pray and are praying along with them. Uh, one of the ways I would say that you can use your bulletins, we don't just put words on the screen but give you something that you can take home, is to then take the word of God you've heard here and have access to it and a, a structure that you can use in your own Bible reading. And let me encourage you for that. Like, we can challenge you to read the Bible. And let me encourage you that uh, you don't just say, I'm going to read my Bible today, but that I'm, I'm going to listen to God today. 
which is going to be basically the same practice, right? You're going to sit somewhere with eyes on a page or with it streaming from the ESV audio site or whatever, right? You're going to look basically the same, but man, that heart posture is real different, right? I'm going to read my Bible versus I'm going to listen to God. And I would say one of the ways you can use that bulletin uh, is every week we put a call to worship in there, and those call to worships are, are scriptures from the Bible, verses from scripture that are, we, you know, we have planned <clears throat> that are particularly helpful for starting engagement with God, right? Uh, today was a prayer, send out your light and your truth and let them lead me to you. So one of the ways you can take your bulletin there is just have that, stick it in your Bible, and every time you go to, to read your Bible this week, start with Psalm 43. Before you start reading the words on the page, say, send out your light, Lord God, on your truth and let them lead me to you. Let me hear as I read. To hear from God. Right? When, we, when we read the scriptures, we, we hear the word of God. And I encourage you then when you pray to listen before you speak. Now, maybe not every time. Sometimes our prayers are pulled out of us because we have particular circumstances. But in the regular habit of your prayer life, let me encourage you to listen, whether that's from the call to worship or the sermon text or whatever scripture passage you're reading for the Bible reading challenge, your own devotional plan, right? But to listen before you speak. So even your prayers are shaped by the word of God that you've heard. You might still pray for that situation at your workplace or the broken relationship in your family or the particular sin you're struggling with. But my suggestion for you to test is to see if you don't pray about those a little differently. If you start by listening and then think about that relationship. If your prayers aren't changed even because you've heard before you've asked. Because God has brought us near so we can hear from him. And he has given us his word so that we can do that. Now in chapter 11, they're not. And so the focus in the first four verses there is uh, five verses, the curses. Go remind them of the curses, Jeremiah. And Jeremiah answers, amen, Lord. Because that's the model that they had in Deuteronomy 27. There's a whole ceremony when they entered the land. Jeremiah is imitating that on behalf of the people. And so God goes on to tell him, in verse 6, the Lord said, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. So God has been patient with them. Look how patient God has been with them. You might not have the math ready at hand. I didn't either, but I spent some time this week calculating how long has it been since they came out of Egypt. How long has God been solemnly warning their fathers and them for centuries as it is this day? 800 years, roughly. For eight centuries, they have been a people with the word of God in the land of God that he had given them. And persistently for eight centuries. With, you know, highlights here and there. But the general pattern is compassed by that. Every one person, you know, they, they, they ignored my covenant. Uh, they have hard and wicked hearts. Persistent rebellion for eight centuries. Eight centuries and he has persisted with them and warned them and called them back and sent prophets and caused his law to be rediscovered two or three times. And, you know, most recently in their case, in the case of King Josiah, finding it in the temple. And yet... As soon as Josiah is off the scene, they return to their idolatry under Jehoiakim. 
And so God says he's been bringing the words of this covenant on them, which I, I think is a reference to the curses. He's, he's been dropping these curses into their lives for eight centuries in escalating ways. The, the curses in Deuteronomy start with mild natural consequences for sin and escalate all the way to exile, which is what's coming, as we know in Jeremiah. But, you know, they just keep hitting the snooze button. God's like, wake up, wake up, wake up. Snooze, back to sleep. Wake up, wake up, wake up. Snooze, back to sleep. Beloved, don't hit the snooze button. When, when the first move of your conscience says, maybe something's wrong in my heart. It's real easy. You see, nah, I'll think about that later. When the first natural consequences of discomfort of your sin starts to create pain in your life, it's real easy to think I can cope with that. Let me encourage you, beloved. When your conscience and your circumstances start arguing that things are going wrong, pay attention and listen up. Listen to God's word. Don't, don't decide because circumstances are hard, that means you must be living in some sort of persistent sin. No, but you may ask, is there some sin that's bringing these circumstances on? And listen to God's word. Satan will creep in right there and accuse you of things that aren't sin. So don't listen just to the inner monologue that you've got. Maybe probably even don't listen much to that. Listen to it enough to drive you to the scriptures. And do that with other people. I mean, we have a church for a reason. So that you're not fighting these fights and trying to listen to these words alone. When the first movements happen, react, respond, listen. Involve each other so that we don't get to Jeremiah 11 in our lives or with our church. Because God's patience does eventually run out. I mean, eight centuries is a long time to persist with the people. Four times longer than we've been a nation? What was happening in 1200? Nothing that any of us can call to mind right away, right? That's how long it's been. And so eventually it runs out. God, in verse 9, says, you know, the Lord said to me, a conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, right? They're all in this together. <laughs> They've turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. <clears throat> Though they cry out, I will not listen. Uh, God is slow to anger. So slow. But he is not a God of no anger. Sin is an offense to his holiness. It is an assault on his creation. It mars and destroys his beloved. And so, he will act as any lover will against what threatens and destroys what he loves. And the thing that is good about God's wrath is what God loves is always beautiful and good, and what God hates and judges is always bad and wicked. We don't think that because oftentimes we are the twisted, ugly, wicked ones whom he is judging. And we don't like to admit that. Hold that thought because it's coming back. <clears throat> he says he won't hear them, not because, well, you know, he says he won't hear them. And then he tells Jeremiah, we saw this last week, he says it again. Verse 14, don't pray for this people or lift up a cry on their behalf. I won't listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. Uh, be, not because God doesn't hear prayers, but because he will not listen to your prayers for comfort while you intend to keep sinning. That's not the kind of salvation God brings. 
I'm not going to save you from the consequences of your sin so that you can just go back to sinning. And then he says in verse 15, right? What right has my beloved in my house, which he's done so many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? These sacrifices cannot keep you from experiencing the judgment of God. Why? Not because the sacrifices are ineffective in themselves. We know they point to the true sacrifice, the death of Christ in our place. But because the sacrifices, as we saw last week, were never intended to let a people persist in rebellion without consequences. They were intended to be an expression of their trust in God and their awareness that their lives needed to change. And beloved, the, the grace offered in Jesus is exactly the same. When you come to God repenting and confessing, wanting to be holy, turning from sin, asking him to cleanse you, he will do that with mercy without end. And when you struggle with sin and find it in yourself and the habits are hard to break and the inclinations persist and you hate them in yourself and you want them gone and you come to God, I messed up again, uh, please cleanse me, Lord God, I, I want this gone, there is limitless patience. But when you think, as many do, and as we are often tempted to. I don't really want to get rid of this. But I can get out of hell if I go to Jesus. And he'll let me keep this sin. Because he's so nice. You're believing a lie. That's not the good news. The good news of the gospel is, Jesus reigns. And will bring you to glory for all who want to be brought to glory. And so for in Israel's case, instead of that fruit-bearing tree, like in Psalm 1, which God saw, you know, in them, verse 16, chapter 11, verse 16, the Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit. And instead of that, they're now just good for firewood. But with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. It's not, it's not good for anything. It's not listening, right? Its roots are not sunk into the word of God, drawing up nourishment from the truth of God to bear fruit to the glory of God. No, their roots are dead. So the tree is dead. So the only thing it's good for is firewood. So, beloved, we hear and are heard. When we cry out to God in faith, he hears our prayers. When we cry out to God wanting to be done with consequences but not wanting to be done with sin, he will not listen. So hear and be heard. Trust his goodness. Know his ways are right. Come to him in faith, and he is faithful and just to forgive all your sins. But that means, as James says, faith like that will inevitably show up in your works. Just as Brandon said so, so well and clearly, right? It's not the faith that saves you. I mean, it's not the works that save you. <laughs> I just messed it up. It's not the works that save you. It's the faith that saves you. You trust God and he listens and he responds and he knows. But that faith, it's drawing from the word, roots, roots in the word of God, drawing up nourishment from the truth of God to bear fruit for the glory of God will bear fruit. Which is where Jeremiah goes in chapter 11, starting in verse 18. What happens when you hear God's truth and you speak God's truth? What happens when God speaks his truth and what is returned is hatred? So from chapter 11, 18 through the end of chapter 12, think about this, speak and risk hatred. That was Jeremiah's calling, speak and risk hatred. When the word of God comes, uh, you risk 
being hated by the world. And Jeremiah was. So look in chapter 11, verse uh, 18. Uh, if you're looking at your ESV, you'll notice how it went from all prose, everything nice, um, you know, all the words laid out to looking like poetry, all set off kind of funny, which is a, sort of a clue that maybe something has shifted. And in verse 18, we go from Jeremiah's word to the nations to now Jeremiah, uh, one of Jeremiah's confessions. We get a lot of these in Jeremiah. We get more in Jeremiah than anywhere else where Jeremiah begins relating his own experience with God. He says, so the Lord made it known to me and I knew you showed me their deeds. But I, Jeremiah says, he was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Now what is he talking about? What deeds and what lamb? He's a lamb led to the slaughter. He says, I did not know it was against me. They devised schemes, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit. See, Jeremiah is the tree. And they want to cut him down. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. There's a plot against Jeremiah's life that he did not have any clue about. But the Lord told him, right, it's coming. The Lord made it known to me and I knew. And so Jeremiah prays in verse 20, but Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind. Let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I've committed my cause. That word vengeance is very harsh in English, and it, it, it is. Uh, in this context, in the Bible, he doesn't mean like, smash them, God. Uh, this word vengeance is a legal word. He means, you know, righteous judge, their hearts and their minds, my, my heart and my mind, vindicate me. Jeremiah has no power against this plot against his life, but God does, and so he commits his a plot, plight to God for God to act exactly as Paul teaches us, right? Vengeance is mine, thus says the Lord. Trust God. Uh, and then in verse 21, God says they, they will get there. <laughs> it will happen. He will judge. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth. Do you remember Anathoth? All the way back from Jeremiah 1.1 is Jeremiah's hometown. Who's trying to kill him? His neighbors who seek your life and say, don't prophesy in the name of the Lord or you'll die by our hand. Therefore, thus is the Lord of hosts. Behold, behold, I will punish them. The young men shall die by the sword. Their sons and their daughters shall die by famine and none of them shall be left. For I will bring disaster upon the men of Anathoth the year of their punishment. Which God says, I know their hearts. I know your heart. I know what's going on here, Jeremiah. It's not lost on me. And when the judgment comes that is coming for Judah, they will be swept up in it. The year of judgment is coming. They will be caught up in the same devastation. And, and then in Jeremiah's response, we get a lesson here in lament. Because Jeremiah does not seem to be content with that answer. And so in chapter 12, he, he begins his lament by confessing God's righteousness. Righteous are you, O Lord. He said that already, right? You're the righteous judge. You are righteous, God. <laughs> when I complain to you, and yet Jeremiah is going to complain. Righteous are you when I complain to you. And yet, I would plead my case before you. Thus says the Lord. <laughs> Jeremiah will complain. Chapter 12, verse 1. I would plead my case before you, God. And what his question is, is why does the, wicked, why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? So, you see, get the agricultural imagery, right? You get the imagery that says, you should be like a fruitful tree, but you're just dead and you've got to be cut down and burned. And Jeremiah goes to God and says, yeah, but look, the wicked, they look like they're flourishing. They're bearing fruit. You plant them, they grow, and you're going to judge the whole land because of them? 
So verse 3, he comes back, he says, you, Lord, know me. You see me, test my heart. He's, he's, he's complaining to the Lord. He's asking God, test me in my complaint here. See what my heart wants. And here's what he wants. He wants verse, the second half of verse 3. Pull them out like sheep for the slaughter. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. So if you're, you picture a sheep pen or a cattle pen, and you're separating the herd, and you've got the guy at the cutter gate, right? He's got the whole, the whole cattle are being worked through, and you've got a guy at the gate that's separating the ones that you want to either give their vaccinations or dehorn them or whatever it is. And that's what Jeremiah is saying to God. Just take the bad sheep out. Cut them out of the flock. Bring your judgment on them so that the whole land isn't swept away. Shouldn't you do that, God? So that's verse 4, right? How long will the land mourn and, every, and the grass of every field wither for the evil of those who dwell in it? The beasts and the birds are swept away because they, right, the, the wicked sheep said, he will not see our latter end. Jeremiah complains. And we get a good lesson in lament. We'll see this a lot. You see it all over the Psalms. Uh, we do it sometimes in the slot, that middle prayer, right? The prayer of confession. Sometimes we pray a prayer of lament. Uh, we, we, we go first to God and we say, I know you're just. Like, I've got, I've got some issues, God, but I know that you're just and you're righteous, which is, which is why we're coming to you. That's how you know it's a complaint in faith. Because it says, this seems wrong. I'm real sure this is wrong. But I know you're righteous. So here's what's going on in my heart, God. And Jeremiah asks with people who have asked for, you know, probably all of history, like, why do the wicked seem to flourish? Why in God's providence are the wicked planted and nourished? And God's answer, well, God's reply, let me say it's not exactly an answer. When, when God responds to Jeremiah, he doesn't answer him. God does not say, well, let me tell you why, Jeremiah. Let me tell you why in this case I've, I've not cut the wicked out and we're going to bring judgment on the holy land. He doesn't do that. Just like when Job complained to God, God never answered Job's questions. And often in the Psalms, when the psalmists lament, the answer is very rarely, oh, here's what's going on. Let me tell you the whole wisdom of the whole world so you can understand. It's very often, hey, who's God here? So he looks at Jeremiah in chapter 12, verse 5, and says, if you've raced with men on foot and they have wearied you, how will you compete with horses? Like if you can't even make a foot race against other people without getting tired, you're going you're gonna to go try to race horses? Jeremiah? Is that what you're doing? Now, if, if in a safe land you're so trusting, and that means you know, you're, you're so trusting that you fall, it's kind of implied there in the way that Hebrews put together, I'm just going to tell you that. Uh, you know, if, if it's a nice level place, you're tripping over yourself. What are you going to do in the forest, in the wilderness by the Jordan, when there's real things to trip over? See, God's... <laughs> God's answer is basically like, hey, brace yourself, Jeremiah. It's going to get worse before it gets better. If you think this is bad, if you are looking around and thinking, like, I've messed this up, what are you going to do when Babylon really comes? God just very rarely feels the need to justify himself to us. He's God. And he is righteous and good. And often when we complain to him, which we should do, we're, we're, we're shown how, we're, it's modeled for us in the Psalms, Jeremiah complains here, and Jeremiah will have many chapters and many decades of ministry after this complaint. This is not disqualified Jeremiah at all, right? God interacts with Jeremiah because his, are, his complaints are legitimate. They are doing evil. And they seem to be they're flourishing God, under God's providence. They're flourishing. And, uh, and some of our complaints are legitimate too, but we should be ready for God's response, not to be an answer to our questions, but just to remind us, Hey, 
I know what I'm doing. So if he says to you, wait and keep running, and you're tired out and tired of it all, what we have to do is wait and keep running and ask the Lord to give us strength. Those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. We'll be able to run uh, not only uh, with men but with horses. I think particularly what God means there is they've got a threat on your life and you're having this sort of crisis of faith, Jeremiah, and before we get to the end of Jeremiah, we're going to see it's going to get a lot worse for Jeremiah. His, the consequences in his life as the righteous herald of God's word are going to bring him lots of suffering. And God is girding him for that. And I wonder, beloved, if we might not need a little bit of bracing girding for our future. If we are going to be the faithful people of God who cling to the word of God, draw nourishment from the word of God to bear fruit for the glory of God, if in our world around us we might not need to be braced like this, like, you know what? It might get bad before it gets better. You might speak and be hated. You might try to do it winsomely and kindly and they still might not listen to you. You might like, you know, the early Christians in, the, uh, in Rome say like, we really want our communities to flourish and have Roman population around them say, you're atheist troublemakers who've rejected the traditional gods and all our trouble is your fault. So if God says to you, beloved, keep waiting and keep running, when you're tired of it all, when your faithfulness to God, whether it's in your family or your workplace, your neighborhood or our community, brings hatred instead of embrace, keep waiting, keep running. Because what we are experiencing is a small shadow, small shadow of what God himself experiences, if I could put it that way. That's, what, that's the point God makes in chapter 12, verse 7. All right, Jeremiah is, I'm sorry, he, 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 I missed this, verse 6, verse 6, let's start by saying God reveals it goes even deeper than Jeremiah thought, right? So in verse 6, we saw already it was his hometown that had a threat on his life, but God says in chapter 12, verse 6, it's even your brothers in the house of your father who have dealt treacherously with you. They are in full cry after you. Don't believe them if they speak friendly words to you. You can't even go, to, you can't even go home for Thanksgiving with a trusting attitude, Jeremiah, because it's your dad who wants you dead. It's bad because you're being a faithful prophet. Um, and consider then <clears throat> what God says then basically is like what Jeremiah is experiencing is, is just a small shadow of what he himself experiences. In verse 7, I have forsaken my house and I have abandoned my heritage. This is God now speaking again. What he's going to do is give up right Jerusalem and the temple and Israel to Babylon. He says, I've given up the beloved of my soul into the hands of her enemies. That's really important that you not think that that's ironic. That verse 7 is sincere. That when God says, I've given them up into the hands of my enemies, they are the beloved of his soul. He has taken them to be his people and he has committed himself to them as their God. There's bridal imagery there, family imagery there. They really, I really do love them. And because they are so persistent in their rebellion, I cannot let them escape consequences. Else they will never come back to me. So I've rejected them, handed them over. My heritage has become, verse 8, chapter 12, verse 8, like a lion in a forest. She has lifted her voice against me, therefore I hate her. <clears throat> I've just 
regular reminder that the word hate in the Bible does not have all of the sort of visceral revulsion that the English word hate usually does. Sometimes it does. But more generally, it just means I've rejected them. Put them away. I've given them over for a time to Babylon. I say for a time because this is not the final word, even in Jeremiah 12. They've become like a lion attacking him, and so what he's going to do, basically, is give them what they want. They want to be a beast attacking their father, and he will let them be a beast among beasts. So in verse 9, is my heritage to me like a hyena's lair? Are the birds of prey against her all around? Go assemble the wild beasts, bring them to devour. You'd rather have the nation's gods and political strength from Babylon? Fine, you can compete on Babylon's terms. You're going to be a beast to me? Let's bring the wild beasts and see how that goes for you. <clears throat> it's not uh, that visceral. I mean, when we hate something and what we fear God is like is when our hatred takes over and we respond, you know, like I did actually yesterday with my own household. <laughs> like, anger totally disproportionate to the circumstance. That's what we fear God is like because that's what we are like. And God is not like that. And the way he consistently talks about his judgment is that his response is always proportionate. Even less proportionate than what is deserved for a time so that people may come to repent. But when he finally brings judgment, it is always proportionate, always right, and always just. So he gives up his heritage to his enemies. But that's not the last word even in, in chapter 12. So as Jeremiah is bringing this lament to God and saying, why are you letting the wicked flourish? And God is saying, really? You don't understand, Jeremiah. I'm God. You're not. You need a bigger picture. He gives in, in chapter 12, at the end of 12, he gives a word to all the evil nations around Israel so they don't misunderstand. Now that's just merciful in its own way, right? All the evil nations that are the beasts that are coming to attack his people that he's giving them over to, he's going to give them a word so they can be saved too. Listen, chapter 12, verse 14. This is what the Lord says concerning all my evil neighbors who touch the heritage that I have given my people Israel to inherit. Behold, I will pluck them up from their land. He's talking about Israel. He's telling the nations about Israel. Like they're going to go into exile. I will pluck them up from their land and I will pluck up the house of Judah from among them. That's happening. It's going to happen. But you guys don't misunderstand, because verse 15, after I've plucked them up, I will again have compassion on them, and I will bring them each again to his heritage and to his land. And it shall come to pass that if they, now he's talking about Judah, if they learn the ways of, I'm sorry, he's talking about the nations, if they learn the ways of my people, to swear by my name as the Lord lives, even as they taught my people to swear by Baal, they, the nations, shall be built up in the midst of my people, Israel. But if any nation will not listen, then I will utterly pluck it up and destroy it, declares the Lord. He's going to pluck up his people and send them into exile. But then, hey, Edom, Moab, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, Philistia, don't misunderstand. They're coming back. Because my compassion will be warmed again. Repentance will come, return will happen. They will not, have not abandoned them forever. And here's your hope, Philistia, Moab, Egypt, Assyria, Wolferth. If you will learn to love their God, you can be built up with them. You taught them to be idolaters. It should have worked the other way. They should have taught you to worship the true and living God. But when they come back, if you'll listen to them, you can have a place and a portion with them.
which is the hope. That's the, this is the good news of Jesus right here. He gave up his son. And he gave up his one and only son who actually never disobeyed the voice of the Father, who always heard the words of God, who every time faithfulness was required was faithful. He gave up that son, plucked him up, lifted him up on the cross. And all the world would have said, as they did on that day, ah, God doesn't love him. If God loved him, let him send his angels and rescue him. It took three days before we were, it was evident and clear that God loved him because God restored him from the grave to glory. And now everyone who comes to the true and living God through his son, exalted to glory, is built up with him. United to Christ, given a share in all the promises and all the hope and all the joy and all the glory that is coming. So even in Jeremiah 12, this hope never goes away. Even as they hate God and have turned against him and he is going to bring discipline on his people, it is not the last word. So beloved, speak to God. Speak to the world. Risk their hatred so we can be his friend. Like Christ, suffer and be brought to glory. And the critical posture for that to happen in your life and mine is humility. The critical vice that is closing their ears is pride, which is chapter 13. Pride is closing their ears. They are called to be humble. We must humble ourselves or be humbled, beloved. Chapter 13, humble yourself or be humbled. So you put that up there. Yep, there we go. Humble yourself or be humbled. This chapter 13 is five warnings. In light of all the covenant language and the promises that God has made, and he's brought them to be near, and they're closing their ears, and so he's going to send them far away. They haven't gone yet, and so there is still the possibility, and there is still the call. Uh, you can see the call in verse 15, right in the middle of the chapter. Hear and give ear. Be not proud. For the Lord has spoken. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness. Before your feet stumble on the twilight mountains. And when you look for light, he turns it to gloom. That's the, Im the middle image there. There's five images here, starting in the middle. is the image of darkness that's uh, approaching. The sun is going down. But if you will call now, before it's night, you don't have to stumble in the twilight when you can't see. If you will call now, hear and believe, repent in your response. Give ear and hear and be not proud. Because eventually the darkness is coming and you won't be able to see. Now to get there, Jeremiah does uh, one enacted parable, which the prophets do sometimes, and then has one other sort of very physical, tangible parable. The first one is about a ruined loincloth. Uh, chapter 13, starting in verse 1, God tells Jeremiah, go buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and don't dip it in water. Now, I don't know what you hear when you hear loincloth. I think underwear. Uh, and some of the commentators think that too. It's, a very, it's hard because it's a very rare word in Hebrew, so there's not a lot of context. Um, but the other place it's used, it's clearly something that is seen. Elijah's Belt is the same word, the leather belt he wore. Um, and so I don't think it's, it's not underwear. It's something that's supposed to be seen. It's a, it's a tight 
waistband. They went over, you know, over your waist. So loincloth's not a bad translation. It just, I think, brings the wrong image to mind because it's something you're supposed to see. Uh, and it, it's something, as we'll see as we keep going, that it's supposed to be, this one is supposed to be glorious. And so, because I've been in Revelation this week at this preaching workshop, my mind went to the gold belt and sash around Jesus' waist in Revelation. But this is the, the waistband that shows his glory. And so God tells Jeremiah, go get a linen one, which is priestly garment, linen is priestly clothing, and, and put it around your waist. Uh, and so he does. I went and bought a loincloth and put it around my waist. And then verse 3, the Lord came to him a second time after he'd been wearing this loincloth for a while, whatever it was, this, this, this waist belt. Uh, take that loincloth that you've bought, which is around your waist, and arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in the cleft of a rock. So the Euphrates is where all the enemies of God come from, the north. The idols they're worshiping are from these northern places. So go hide this loincloth in the place associated with these idols. And so I did what the, he did what the Lord commanded me. And then in verse 6, after many days, the Lord said, Arise, go to the Euphrates. Take from there the loincloth I commanded you to hide there. So Jeremiah did. I went to the Euphrates and dug and took the loincloth from the place where I'd hidden it. And behold, to no one's surprise, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Now Jeremiah did all that, knowing, not knowing what's coming, right? He's just responding to God's word, like, why are you having me do this, God? I don't understand. I'm, okay, I'm wearing a belt. Okay, now I'm hiding a belt by the Euphrates. Okay, now I'm going to go dig it up. And, okay, here, here it is. After all this obedience, then the word of the Lord, verse 8 says to me, thus says the Lord, even so I will spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve and worship them, shall be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. Because the way that loincloth clings to the waist of a man, I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me. I brought them near for glory. That's what he says, for glory. Declares the Lord that they might be for me a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. That's what they were supposed to be. This glorious adornment, tightly clinging to the Lord their God. But instead, they went off God's from a foreign land. And so like this loincloth was spoiled, being away from Jeremiah's presence and in the presence, you know, in the dirt and the phrase, Israel's pride will be too. <clears throat> the joy, the glory, that's what we lose when you ignore God's word with him. And so in chapter, uh, verses 12 through 14, there's this image of, of wine Go tell them this word, thus says the Lord of God of Israel, every jar will be filled with wine. And they say, don't we indeed know that every jar will be filled with wine? <clears throat> it's like this image of celebration. We're going we're to fill all the jars with wine for celebration. Yeah, of course we're going to do that. You know, it's party time. And Jeremiah says, well, actually what I mean is, you're going to be filled with drunkenness, and you're going to destroy each other. That's what I mean. You're the jars. And you're going to smash against each other like pots and... and tear each other apart because you're not listening to the word of God because you're filling yourselves with your own idolatries and so in your pride you're ruining yourselves and so then verses 15 through 17 the gloom will grow the darkness will come and in verses 18 through 22 he particularly focuses on the king and the queen mother and tells them take a lowly seat you see the humility and pride theme coming in your beautiful crown has come to an end they've been dethroned and why because verse 21 what will you say when they set as head over you, those whom you have taught to be friends with you. You're making these peace alliances with Babylon and Assyria. You're trying to worship their gods. So you have their strength and security. What are you going to say 
when this world you're making friends with dominates you and ruins you. They're not your friends. You're teaching them to be friends with you. You're trying to be nice. You're trying to buddy up. They're not your friends. They'll use you as long as you're convenient. And then as soon as they can, they will conquer you. And your sin in this world is exactly like that. Don't make friends. Don't think you can be at peace with it. As James will say in James 4, that whoever makes himself a friend of the world is an enemy of God. We try to reach the world and plead with the world and engage with the world in a way that they can hear us. We can't buddy up with them like we're equals. You do your thing, I'll do mine, and we'll all be fine. Because in verse 23, evil gets entrenched. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 23, this is the the fifth and closing image here. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Now, I just want to say right now that the the racist interpreters in the past have used that to argue that darker shades of skin are more wicked. Which is wicked. That is not what Jeremiah or the Lord means. But what what he does mean is that an Ethiopian in Israel would stand out and be obvious. And is that possible? So if the prophecy had been given in Ethiopia, he would have told the Ethiopians, can a Hebrew change his skin? It's not about skin color, it's about permanence. You can't do that. Can a leopard change his spots? No. A leopard can't change his spots. And here's the punchline. If, if, it, if, if we could change our skin color or the leopard could change its coat, then you, who can, you could do good who are accustomed to doing evil. You're so entrenched in your evil. It's such a habit for you. It is impossible for you to get rid of it. You can't do it. You make yourself a friend with the world. You harden your heart and your pride. You persist against all the warnings of God's conscience and God's spirit and God's word. And you get entrenched and your conscience gets seared. Your life gets hard. Your heart gets hardened. By habit, long habit, it becomes impossible to rule out. So we go back to those early warnings. If you persist in rejecting them, it will get harder and harder to repent. So an 18-year-old and an 80-year-old both need to do the same thing, right? They need to confess their sins and come to Christ. But an 80-year-old now has eight decades of regret they have to be willing to embrace, which is just harder than an 18-year-old who has 18 years of regret to admit and embrace. The more of your life you devote to hiding sin, entrenched in evil, the more you pursue that, the more painful repentance becomes. Because there's more to grieve, more to regret, more to have to offer up to God, more to be humiliated about. And so the, the warning is for us to hear today. The more you persist in pride, the harder it will be to hear. And so he closes in chapter 13 with the question, how long before you're made clean, Jerusalem? How, how long indeed? How long? The good news of the gospel is the power of the Spirit makes dead hearts live. The blood of Jesus cleanses every stain of sin. The cleansing comes when we come to him in faith. The God who brought us near to him brought us near by forsaking his own son. And so the answer is, as soon as you repent, you will be clean. And no matter how hard you think it will be, it is not so hard the Spirit of God cannot overcome. You can run 
and be weary and the spirit will strengthen you. You can see the mountain of repentance you think you need to climb and think, I can't do it. The work of God, the spirit of God and the word of God and the people of God are all with you so you can climb that mountain of repentance. So you can confess it and bring it into the light and be cleansed. So we can hear and be restored. And we will be restored in Christ, given a share in him so that we like Jesus, will be raised in glory, a people, a name, a praise, and a glory. Not of our own in our pride, but of his. To come saying, I don't want my own way, I don't want my own life, I don't want my own glory. I want yours. I want your way. I want your life, O oh God, and I want to reflect your glory. And his glory will far outshine whatever feeble little light of your own glory you could ever possibly muster anyway. So come and hear. Be cleansed unto glory. Let's pray. God, we are thankful that we have this hope. Um, And grateful even for the painful work of your word in our lives as we submit our hearts to you and ask you to search them and that your light exposes the darkness in us. God, we are thankful to know that we can do this work of humbling ourselves under your mighty hand, knowing that what you do is exalt everyone who comes to you like that. You bring down the proud, but you raise up the lowly. And so, God, we pray for the grace to be lowly, to be humble before you, to have ears that are open, hearts that are sensitive, God, by the work of your Spirit. That we might walk in your ways in the full confidence that Christ has secured eternal salvation. That the kingdom he brings is the kingdom of glory and the things that look good and attractive in this world are passing away. What a great joy to have a hope in that kingdom and to have this hope to share with others. Help us share in the sufferings of our Savior as we speak and maybe invite hatred. That we might know you to be as close to us as you have bound us to you. That nothing can separate us from your love in Christ. We thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.